Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Today we have returning guest Riki Hayashi is joining us to talk about all things Leia, Princess Leia and General Organa, specifically in the book Bloodlines. We're talking about all sorts of these great novels and parts of the Star Wars story as we get ready for a whole bunch of new content starting in August. And we're going to have all that more after this quick commercial break. I'm Andy Nelson. And I'm Pete Wright. We're the team behind the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The Writers Guild is on strike, and we fully support them. As members of the entertainment industry and lovers of film and television, we know that writers have often been left behind through various industry transitions. There were DVD residuals they never got, then Blu-ray, and now streaming. The entertainment companies have leveraged the streaming transition to underpay writers, creating more precarious, lower-paid models for writers' work. We love the accessibility streaming services provide, but that doesn't mean the writer's work should be devalued because of it. Whether it's a small indie drama, a wild new horror film, or a mega blockbuster, they all start with a script. When the studios invest millions into producing these projects, they should be paying the writers for the value they create. I'm Justin J.J. Yeager, and I support the writers represented by the WGA. I'm Chrissy Lenz. I'm Nathan Blackwell. This is Kyle Wilson. I'm Nate McWhorter. I'm Mandy Fabian. I'm Tommy Metz III. I'm Steve Sarmento. I'm Matthew Fox. I'm Ray Delancey. I support the writers represented by the WGA. 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 And I support the writers represented by the WGA. I support the writers represented by the WGA. I support the writers represented by the WGA. I'm Andy Kaplan, and hell yeah, I support the writers represented by the WGA. Our network is in full support of the Writers Guild. back. I'm Matthew, your host. As I said, I'm joined by Riki Hayashi. If you've listened to our episodes on the Clone War or on Rebels, you probably know Riki's voice well. He's also been a guest on some of my Star Wars, uh, some of my superhero ethics content. Took a break with a lot of stuff going on. Uh, both him and Sarah will hopefully be back soon to, as we finally finish out Rebels before Ahsoka starts. But today we're talking about uh, Leia and Bloodlines. Riki, how are we doing today? Konnichiwa, Matthew and Star Wars Universe podcast people. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back. Uh, Yeah, like we had to take a little break. And the live content or, you know, like when the new shows were coming out, it was hard Mm -hmm. for us to keep up. We usually watch it on day two. And I know like you want to put your content out there as soon as possible. So we just couldn't really sync up on that. But of course, we watched it all and enjoyed it. And Mm -hmm. I, I did listen to the podcast. So I'm all caught up, ready to get back into action. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and like I said... This is just such a glorious time to be a Star Wars fan because amazing. there's just so much content coming out. Right now, I still have Jedi Survivor 
uh, that I've only started mm. playing because about a few, we got it and then we had housemates uh, come stay with us for a while and then I played it for two nights and then um, Tears of the Kingdom, the new Zelda game, showed up and I, I understand the pecking order in my household. Uh, Zelda comes first and then Star Wars. So as soon as Mary finishes that one, we're going to go back into Jedi. But there's also just been so many good books coming out over the last couple of years and I'm kind of curious to hear from you. Was Star Wars book something you were always aware of, like during the extended universe days? Is it something you've only gotten into recently? Where are you as a Star Wars reader? I was always into the novels, not as much as uh, our friend Jonah Kelman. Uh huh. But I definitely like Heir to the Empire. It was eye opening, like a re- revelation to me. That yeah. Original trilogy by Timothy Zahn, and I enjoy that so much. And I kept with it for a while but it it did reach a point where my interest in them waned because i think the stories started to differ from what i loved about star wars which is primarily like you know luke leia han that trio Mm -hmm. and that extended group of rebels and it, it cut a little bit too far from that and i stopped reading but now we're kind of resetting with the with the canon novels and we get those stories all over again yeah. No, and I'm really excited that you mentioned Bloodline as one that you were excited to talk oh about. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> and I will say here, for those who have not read the book, um, if you are planning to read it, we will be spoiling some stuff from it, some pretty big stuff. So if you're planning to read it, I would hit stop now. But if either you have read it or if you haven't, and frankly, you don't think you're going to be able to commit the time to read the whole novel, but you just want to hear us talk about it, we will go over what are some of the main themes and stuff like that. And so either way, you're very welcome here. And so... Ricky, let me just kind of ask you, you mentioned like that, you know, the the original trilogy of not only movies, but of characters. Where has Princess Leia ranked for you, especially as she's gone from Princess Leia to General General Organa? What do you mean ranked, like in terms of the main characters? I mean, ranked is the wrong word. It doesn't have to be like favorite or not, but just kind of your general feelings about the character. I think she is a fascinating character, probably... I mean, if I were to rank them, I would say Luke Skywalker is my favorite because it's just the Jedi-ness of it. Mm-hmm. But I think I like Leia a little more than Han. Like, Han has his charms. Yeah. But I think Han is probably a little too one-dimensional. They do add some depth, but he always just seems to be kind of like that romantic scoundrel type character. Mm-hmm. Whereas Leia, especially like in this novel... We get to see Leia transition from a general. Well, was she a general in the original rebellion? Maybe not. She becomes a general in the resistance. Mm-hmm. But regardless, a re- rebellion fighter right. to a politician, which she technically was a politician before that. She was in the Imperial Senate as a teenager. But we don't really get much of that so, right. so far in the things that we've watched. So seeing her transition into this political role, I think, is very important for understanding her character and just gives her a lot more depth, like I said, than someone like Han. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. She has always been one of my absolute favorites, Um, you know, especially, granted, I, I, I was a kid. I was actually... As I said, the first movie I watched, depending whether or not I watched it in the theater, depends on your definition of personhood and all that. Because my mother was about six months pregnant when uh, she when I <laughs> um, she watched it. But I grew up with her. She was always my original heroine, both the girl I wanted to rescue, but also the girl I wanted to to, to admire. 
I was eight years old and the gold bikini was the gold bikini and that wasn't a small part, but like, I just always loved everything about her character and the way she grew and evolved. And then in later stuff, getting to see so many different sides of her, first on screen with, as we talked about Rebels, she's a recurring character we see a lot more of, and then especially in the sequels, getting to see her be that general. And then this book, I think, really kind of showed us a new side of her that we've never seen. Because as you said, it's not just she's a politician who's sort of working behind the scenes in most of the other stuff. Here, she's a straight-up politician. And through her, we get to see not only the, poli- the not only her, but we get to see the politics, which is, I think I made a comment to you that this is basically the closest we get to Coruscant West Wing, which is maybe not something most people want, but I know I desperately wanted it. And just getting to see the... The imperial, mach- the senatorial machinations, um, has been was something I really loved about this book, and getting to see where she was in it. Yeah, like for a lot of people, that's their least favorite part of Star Wars, right? The politics stuff that happens in yep. the prequel trilogy, for example. And mm-hmm. you and I both love that. We love any mention of the banking clan. <laughs> yep, <laughs> which I believe we got again in this novel. But yep. this, yeah, this bloodline by Claudia Gray really. I don't know. It cements Leia as such a versatile character as well. Yeah. And really interesting. Well, let me give kind of a, a quick summary of the book. You can go online and read a full synopsis through the link in the show notes. Basically, this is set about 20 years after the destruction of the Empire. So we're about 10 years after the events of Mandalorian, about 10 years before the events of The Force Awakens and all that. And the Senate is locked in gridlock. Uh, There are these two parties that are basically kind of intractable, um, one of which is called the populists, who really want power to be held by the local planets and for the republic to be very kind of decentralized and, and not very powerful. And then the centralists, who want most of the power to be held by the, the new republic. They admire some of the things about the empire in terms of the efficiency of it. You know, the there was one law. There was, you know, people weren't getting attacked out in the, the boonies. The trains ran on time, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I use that fascist reference because there is some definite elements of some of them leaning towards fascism, while some of the, the populists are leaning towards libertarianism and the problems that can cause on both sides. And um, we're pretty solidly from the perspective of the book and from Leia on the side of the populists. She herself was a populist. But it makes for a very interesting kind of political grounding. And most importantly, what we're seeing is that the New Republic is failing, that the Senate is locked in gridlock. And there are some efforts to bring back more of an authoritarian role, to make get rid of the chancellor and to create instead the office of the first senator. Uh, and Leia winds up not liking the idea, but kind of deciding she'll stand for the role. Um, she makes friends with someone who's in some ways kind of her counterpart, but in many ways her chief rival on the side of the centrists, who is a guy named uh, Ramsom, Ramsom Castrofo, I think is how you pronounce it. I didn't uh, listen to the book on tape. I just saw it online. And he's someone who has some admiration for parts of the Empire. And at first, she's very nervous about this. She comes to find that he has a real hatred against Darth Vader, and he's sort of like, well... Can we have some of the efficiency of the Empire without going as far as they did? There's a lot of tension between all the various parties over the course of the book. There's a couple of uh, terrorist attacks. That Then there's a whole question about who's behind it. Is it the centrists? Is it the populists? There's all kinds of political machinations. And uh, eventually, another character comes along named Lady Cerise Sindian, who is a another sort of royal 
a member of a royal house. We learned from her that there used to be these a number of royal houses that were very important throughout the galaxy, and Alderaan was one of them. She really wants to sort of bring back those days of the royal houses. And, and again, there being this idea of kind of that the core worlds, the central worlds, like, like Coruscant and the rest, should, should kind of be ruling everything. Uh, not Coruscant by this point, because it's kind of fallen in disrepair, but Hosnian Prime and all, uh, what would have been Alderaan and, and things like that. Um, and over the course of the book, that character uh, is revealed that um, she's actually working for the First Order, because she thinks that's the way to really bring true order back to the galaxy. She finds out that Leia is the descendant of Darth Vader, and she reveals that secret, a secret that we've seen Leia kind of really wrestling with and struggling with. And that opens us up to all these questions about how is Vader remembered and how are all these other characters in the in the galaxy remembered. Um, there's a whole kind of subplot about this group that is kind of proto-First uh, first Order that I think, honestly, is not very important for what we're talking about today, but it's a fun adventure plot. Han Solo gets to do Han Solo things. Leia gets to do Leia things. Um, and, and they foil the plot, but in the end, the the person who turned out is kind of an ally to them, Caster Foe, um, winds up being framed by his allies in the centrists and taken away and executed. And the book ends with Leia coming to realize that working for change within the Senate is just never going to work. And so she has to get a bunch of people together to form a secret group called the Resistance who are going to start taking the military action the New Republic won't to fight what they see coming, which we'll eventually come to know as the First Order. How'd I do? Pretty good. Um, I think, yeah, you're correct about the pronunciation. Uh, I looked mm-hmm. it up. It said Ransom Castrofo. Yep. I'm not sure about, uh, you said Cerise, maybe, but I, th- I, I think thought it's Cerise, was... yeah. But yeah, the, the overall, the plot, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. And mm-hmm. the whole West Wing thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm here. Well, so let's talk about those politics because I think it's impossible to talk about them without talking about The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. And because I think very clearly we're supposed to be – this is helping to set up what happens in The Force Awakens. And I'm – let me kind of give my perspective. I'm curious where where you stand and if you're similar. I was always a little frustrated by The Force Awakens. I think in many ways it's a great movie. But, you know, most movies, they show the proud, the, the, the bold rebellion against the Empire. They never actually show what comes next. And we never talk about how hard it is to govern. And in actual politics, in world history, we see again and again, you can overthrow a, a monarchy, a fascist dictatorship, a, an empire, whatever it is. And a lot of the times, the, the, the move towards democracy is a very difficult one with a lot of fits and starts and often falling back into some level of fascism or dictatorship or things like that. And I was really excited to see, okay, what happens when our heroes have to be the ones in power and are having to balance, like, how much power do you use without becoming authoritarian or just being too hands-off? And, and so when The Force Awakens was like, eh, no, we're just going to go with Resistance, it's a fun movie, but I was a little disappointed by that. And so I was so excited to see in this book more of what actually happened with the New Republic. How, how did you feel about kind of The Force Awakens and, 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 and this book covering some of the stuff that it didn't? So I agree. The Force Awakens, to me, never made sense. And in fact, mm-hmm. even after reading some of these novels, it still doesn't make sense. Because based on what we know here, 
the centrist party in the New Republic, many of them are secretly working for the First Order at this point in this novel, right? And some years after this novel, they will more openly embrace the First Order. And so, you know, call it half, right? Just because it's, you know, two parties. Half of the galaxy is going to embrace, re-embrace authoritarian dictatorship in the First Order. The other half, the populists, why aren't they doing something in The Force Awakens? Leia is leading the resistance, but it is very much portrayed as an underground, more like secret fight. Mm -hmm. So what are the mainline populists doing? Because in fact, the First Order fires their Neo-Death Star, Star Killer base on Hosnian Prime, the capital in this novel, and they destroy presumably the populace and like probably Mm -hmm. tell the centrist, any remaining centrists to get out. But I'm still not sure like how we go from bloodline to the force awakens in terms of what are the populists doing? What are the mainline populists doing? So this is a hard one because, you know, normally I think we like to touch on the fact that there are real world political illusions in the stuff we like, but to focus more on the stories themselves and so I'm trying I don't want to just go into a political rant here. But I, to me I feel like I understand it very clearly because I feel like we lived through it. Um and I know I've listened to the author talk about it that that this was meant very much to be a mirror of the modern day American politics over the last 15 years and with the the people you're talking about being kind of the stand-ins for the folks who kept acting like it was business as usual while you know, the Tea Party and other groups like that kept kind of, you know, more and more fermenting that they weren't just looking to to be a part of American politics, but but to be much more violent in January 6th and all that. And I pulling it away from that, that's actually a dynamic that I think you see again and again and again. Like um, there's a wonderful analysis I read in The Economist a couple months, I think it was The Economist a couple months ago that talked about sort of how Russia was a democracy for a short time and that there'd been this as you know, people like Putin started to f- push back into being authoritarians taking over again, that people kept wondering, why isn't the democracy fighting to save itself? And that there was just such the sense of, we don't want to be authoritarians again, and we don't want to acknowledge how bad the threat is, that the democracies often wind up just not doing anything to save themselves. And I, I agree with you that it's still not perfect, and there's a lot... Th- you know, why is the entire galactic fleet on Hosnian Prime and a, and a couple of the planets nearby that it can be destroyed? Why is everything so easily wiped out? And then if that's the case, why is it that, that so many of them wind up showing up again by the rise of Skywalker? Like, I think there's a lot of things there that aren't fully explained. But I do, to me at least, this helps to, this plus the stuff we're seeing in Mandalorian and Bad Batch I feel like it's kind of like what the Clone Wars did for the prequels. The prequels still have some mm-hmm. big holes in them, but the Clone Wars make it a lot make sense. To me, this gives me at least a lot more like, okay, you've sketched in the overarching structure of how it happened. I'm going to have to headcanon some stuff still, because like you said, there's still some big holes, but it makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of different thoughts. Let me try to organize them real quick. So first off, it. yeah, like... The, the novel is very prescient to our times, like the two parties mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that stuff. 
And it's amazing to me because this book came out. You would think, like, based on based on reading it and us talking about it, that this book came out, like, this year or last year. Mm. But it actually came out in 2016 and was primarily yeah. conceptualized mm. and written in 2015. So before a lot of this started happening in real life, the, the novel is just, like, on that level, yeah. is amazing to me. Yeah. And the... The thing that, like, I agree with you that kind of the this is how Liberty dies, right? We saw a version of that in the prequels where it's right. taken over from the inside. That's not what's going on here, right? Like, the First Order mm-hmm. essentially isn't – many of them are inside, like, centrists. Right. But by The Force Awakens, it is a I, – I think in this novel they even say, like, secede. Like, it is a breakaway. Yeah. So why – like, it is – it. The First Order has officially broken away and has a very powerful military that they had been building up in secret, but at, by the point of that movie, is like very out in the open with Star Destroyers and a Star Killer mm-hmm. base. You don't keep that kind of thing a secret. I'm, I'm still of the opinion that it, it does not make sense to me that so much of the galaxy was ignoring them at that point. I guess to me it makes—I I definitely hear you, and I think it's it's— I'm having to headcanon a bit somewhat to get there, I think. I think where it makes sense to me is in that, like, I mean, and here, again, bouncing around historical illusions, think of Europe in the late 1930s, you know, as Germany rearms and a couple of nations are yelling and screaming, going, they're going to start another world war, they're going to start another world war. And England and France keep saying, no, no, as long as as we appeasement, you know, I, I... I saw a lot of Neville Chamberlain in listening to some of the the politicians in this book talk about like, well, you know, as long as we just sort of give them more of what they want, we can avoid the war. And I guess and here this may be well the headcanon because that's a Mm -hmm. period of history that's so important to me. But I guess that's what I'm thinking is that it's like the reason why Leia has to kind of go underground is because the rest of the Senate is like, look, if we just don't bother. Remember when Dooku and his people split off, we tried to stop them and it was a cataclysmic war and in many ways that war never ended it just morphed into the empire what if this time we just don't bother them we just let them go off on their own and maybe we can just coexist yeah i i think the issue i have is that that story you just outlined like the neville chamberlain story Mm -hmm. could very well be a possibility and perhaps it will be written in the future or depicted in the future yeah, one hundred percent agree. But, yeah. but because we don't have that, like until yeah. they give that to us, I'm still going to be like, don't get this first order. Yeah, like because to me, we get basically two sentences in the crawl of the Force Awakens, and then you just have to kind of interpret the rest. I know. And so that's kind of the that yeah. that's kind of the headcanon I've had. But yeah, I I agree with you that. I'm probably headcanoning pretty hard because I know the politics so well from other things. And I think despite, like, you and I both love, love with a capital L, The Last Jedi, and Mm -hmm. much cooler on the other two, on the J.J. Abrams movies in the the sequel trilogy. And I think part of the issue is the crawl issue. When you have the crawl of The Rise of Skywalker announce, the dead speak, and, like, that's how we find out that Palpatine is back. It's like, aren't we missing a lot? You know, and Mando is trying so very hard to give it to us, I and I applaud them for that. But um, 
but let's 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 get back to this book itself. So talk more about like like I said, the West Wing of it because we get a lot of these political machinations. Oh my gosh! So, so Cat- how, yeah, talk talk about that. What do you think of these two parties? Casterfo Casterfo might be my favorite new Star Wars character in a long time. Yeah, and again, we're like we're going to talk about this novel, so we're we're in full spoilers territory. So you mentioned earlier, like at the end, he's arrested, um, mm-hmm. and you said executed. I actually looked it up. He he is a prisoner. He remains a prisoner of the First Order and actually escapes. And oh, okay. I think it's it might be a comic book or something, but it, it is written on Wikipedia that he escapes and joins the Resistance and he and Leia meet again, which is okay. just like that heartwarming ending that I need out of this. Like The end of this novel actually really devastated me. I, I cried yeah. a little. I shed a tear when Castrofo was framed. And he's as he's being taken away, he has this heartfelt moment with Leia where they kind of reconcile again because they had become enemies. Right. You mentioned that uh, Lady Sindian reveals to the world that Leia is Darth Vader's daughter, but she actually uses Castorfo to reveal that information. Castorfo and right. Leia had been becoming friends and allies, and she uses this information to break them up. Yeah. And Cause she. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, to break them up. And to knock down Leia's power and then frames Castorfo for the, right. they call it the napkin bombing, the terrorist act in the, the middle mm-hmm. of the novel. Yeah. And just to be clear, I think the at the end of this novel, all indications are that Castorfo is going to be executed. And I think it's in many ways Leia's helpless, feeling helpless that she can't stop that. That's a big part of what makes her decide. But as you said, that I think I, I hadn't realized that. But that's awesome that in later works there is some hope uh, entered in. Yeah, but, it, they but for the purpose of this novel, I think the point is that she thinks she can't save him, and that's one of her last. Like, the Senate is dead. We yeah. can't do anything in the Senate anymore. Castorfo mentions that as a centrist, he's for authoritarian, I mean, more authoritarianism than the current New Republic, and right. so he in the beginning of the novel, says how proud he is that his planet has reinstated the death penalty because he believes that that is how a government should uh, institute its power. So at the end, he's like, it's kind of ironic that I helped reinstate the death penalty. So it's implied Mm -hmm. that he may be killed, but, you know, it takes... People stay a long time on death row, rightfully, I think, because I, I don't believe in the death penalty, but at the very least, you want to make sure it's right. Yeah. You got it yeah, right. I think I'm, so go through I'm all the appeals processes. Um, but yeah, so it's believable that he is convicted but is on death row for long enough to escape. Certainly. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, he is such an interesting character, especially because, like, it, it's funny how he kind of, like, I had to really try hard not, not to read too much of current politics into his character mm. because he is... He's more authoritarian than Leia, to be sure. Yeah. But one thing that we also see is that right now it's a very, like, again, going into American history, but it, it, it reminds me a lot of the 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 pre-Constitution, when, like, right after the rebellion, right after the American Revolutionary War, you had a bunch of these loose colonies that didn't really know what they were doing. You know, there are pirate attacks. There are all these things happening that the, the New Republic has no way to deal with. And... In many ways, and I think this is very intentional, it's very much a mirror of what was happening, you know, pre-Clone Wars and and in the Republic and the kind of things that the separatists bring up. And I think, you know, one thing I've always been fascinated by in in global history is how a lot of times 
the debates that happen in one war, 30, 40 years later, it's the same debates happening. And I think this question of how much global, how much galactic authority should the, the primary government have versus how much should the local authorities have, how much should these different governments have, it's all the same questions. And I think the book does a really good job of it's easy to just write him off as always just an authoritarian. He's just power hungry until you realize, no, he's someone who in many ways, it's because he saw how much devastation the empire brought to him that he wants what he thinks is a more trustworthy government to have some degree of authority and power to prevent, you know, imperial warlords or, or whatever it is coming to power. Yeah, specifically his planet um, was stripped of its resources by the Empire, and many people, I think including his parents, were enslaved. And right. Darth Vader personally visited their planet to carry out some of this, which is why he has such a personal hatred for Vader, and right. why he ends up betraying Leia when he finds out that she's his daughter. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Because of that personal connection, and yeah. it's, it's done in a really, in a really powerful way. And I want to talk about the personal connection just on him, though, for a second. Do you think it's fair to say that he would be one of those people who, once 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 they fully understood the First Republic, he would be the, one of the more hawkish ones? In the, in, once they fully understand that the First Order is happening, he'd be one of those being like, no, no, we can't coexist with these people. We have we have to fight them or they're going to fight us. Yeah. I. So one of the other interesting things about his character is that he is a collector of imperial artifacts. Yeah. Right in his office, like when he first meets Leia and their enemies, she's shocked that he has, I believe, like a, a Tie Fighter helmet in his mm-hmm. office and several other like Imperial military artifacts. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh yes, I'm a collector of these things." And and this is when we are still meant to hate him and to not right. trust him. And then there's one point, like he goes to acquire the Red Imperial, the Empire's Guard helmet. Mm-hmm. Like he finds out there's one on the market and he goes to acquire it. And this is part of him and Leia reconciling and doing an investigation of some of these malicious forces out there. So he acquires his helmet and he has a party where he's like, hey, all of my fellow Imperial artifact enthusiasts, like, look what I got. And he shows it off. But while he has this party, I just want to read this passage like. Go for it. This is so powerful to me. Like, he sees what is going on around him. Like, the people that he has up to now thought of as his friends mm-hmm. and realizes that they are not interested in the artifacts just from a historical perspective. He's, like, right. listening to conversations and people are people at his party are praising the emperor. He's like, that's not what I stand for at all. And he says, this is what his, his internal thought is. He says... But he was no longer proud to be counted among the others who valued these artifacts. To him, the imperial relics stood for strength. To the others, they stood for domination. Yeah. And I think that perfectly encapsulates his character very well, is that he wanted strength, like a strong central government, for the sake of protecting people. Right. And he realizes that so many of the people who thought were his friends and allies want that strength just to enrich their own egos and wealth and personal power. And I think in many ways, that's one of the most fascinating parts of the whole book is that because I I think it would be easy to say, oh, that's his tragic flaw 
is that he believes in benevolent authoritarianism and that you can't have that. You know, you have to have democracy. And, and, and for the most part, I do believe that kind of thing. But I think he makes such a wonderful counterpoint to Leia because Leia is someone who we now know has twice in her life, once due to her parents' influence, once completely on her own, but she herself doing it, twice has been part of the official governmental assembly and then started working behind the scenes as part of a rebellion or a resistance movement. You know, both times sort of saying, we can't go through the normal cha channels of democracy anymore. We have to use force. We have to do something to fight this growing evil. And I just, I thought the thing I love the book is I kept looking for the person I could say, okay, they're right. Mm. And I never found it. Yeah. Which is the same reason that it both drives me crazy and that I love it of Andor. Because just like in Andor, where there are so many characters where I'm like, I hate the thing you're doing, but I know that what you're doing is right. Or, or, or at least he's going to get us the result we need. Or on the flip side, I respect the ideals you're trying to hold to, but I think you trying to hold us to the ideals is going to hurt us. Um, it, I think the book does a really good job of saying he probably goes too much towards authoritarianism and it bites him in the ass, but Leia's... You know, Leia's ideas of the Senate being what can save everything is wrong, too. And and the book kind of ends with not really being sure what's the way forward. Yes. And the interplay that they have, like when they are working together, like first as enemies, but then legitimately as friends, the interplay that they have and the debates that they have about their political views and sometimes mm -hmm. like kind of like petty snipes at each other, but it becomes friendlier is right. to me reminiscent of the conversation that Satine and Obi-Wan have in the Clone Wars episodes where they're oh, escorting her. Yeah. And that I really love that episode and I think the the reminder of that in these two characters is very beautiful and the way the narrative puts them together and then makes you like them both but also understand their flaws and then tears them apart is just it's really well written. I really enjoy yeah. this. I'll also say, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but you haven't read Leia, Princess of Alderaan, right? Uh, I have not. We, we had talked about also covering uh, Princess and the Scoundrel, which I liked because I, I think it's one of the best romance novels I've ever written, frankly. I've ever mm. read, frankly, because it's about Han and Leia basically um, getting married and having their honeymoon and having some adventures along the way. There wasn't really enough about it, though, to be worth for us to talk about today. And I'm not going to spoil Princess of Alderaan. But I'll say that it, it, I think, makes a very good counterpoint to this because it's about her coming to understand what her parents know about the failings of the Senate and that maybe it's time to go beyond the Senate to fight the Empire and her coming to some of the same conclusions. Mm. And it's really – like I really think those two authors coordinated because you can see a lot of the same lessons being learned and a lot of the same decisions. Um, but mostly that kind of her cynicism by this book – that she's ready to give up on the Senate pretty early in the book. Uh, she kind of wants to go and run off with Han and, and be speed racers way off on the edge of the galaxy, which yeah. seems like a fun life, and she deserves to retire. Um, but, like, in Princess of Alderaan, she has so much idealism about, like, no, we can't use violence. We have to let the Senate do what the Senate does. And, and seeing who she becomes in that book and how it leads to her being who she is in this book is just it, – it just is perfectly, perfectly set up. Okay, well, I'll definitely – Look for that one next, then, perhaps. 
I, I will also say that she happens to meet in the young Imperial Senate program a uh, teenage girl with pink hair who will become one of her best friends. Oh, good. Um, yes. So that's how we, we, we get to meet I was, I, fr- Frankly, I was expecting that character, um, Admiral Hold Holdo, yeah. I yeah. was expecting that character to show up in this novel. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I have no idea how it all gets negotiated with all these people writing these things at the same time, but um, yeah. Well, on well, that note, like a little bit of the background of this novel that I found interesting was that I said, you know, it was it came out in 2016, and in the planning for this novel, because like all of the Disney stuff is interconnected, so they mm-hmm. have like everyone talks to everyone. A lot of the stuff in this novel was potentially going to be in the post schools trilogy. And yeah. apparently Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi, did have some input on some of the plot and the characters to this novel. Like, Castorfo was potentially going to be in um, The Force Awakens, I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At some point, I want to hear the story because as much as I, I, I disagree with J.J. Abrams' vision of Star Wars, I've come to understand that, like, I, I can't really blame either Johnson or Abrams when you have a trilogy of movies and two different directors and writers with different visions, someone, it was someone's job to put them in a room together, and I don't know why that didn't happen. But I am very glad that it seems like today we have acknowledged that problem, and there is so much more. You know, you just see in the way The Bad Batch and Mandalorian this spring had so many plot lines that were overlapping that, that at least we're getting better on that. I Well, I don't... I don't know about the sit them in a room. Like, I don't know how much those two collaborated and talked to each other. But there are other issues in that, you know, like, now it's all owned by Disney. And Disney Mm -hmm. execs, like, as much as they are an entity, like, there are individual human beings on Disney executive board. But as an entity, like, Disney executives hold a lot of sway over these stories now. And some of the problems that people had with The Mandalorian Season 3 it is believed was heavily influenced by Disney execs, right? Or not just season three, but the Mandalorian season 2.5, when Mando and Grogu show up in Book of Boba Fett. It is believed that Disney was like, put put Baby Yoda in this show, because we need to sell more Baby Yoda. Like, that is the strong belief right now. I think it's, it's very plausible. I mean, it's the same people who said, okay, we need to set up all the next movies in Avengers Ultron. So, you know, like this kind of corporate pressure has been there in lots of ways. And yeah, um, but you're pulling us back to the book. Let, let me kind of ask you one last question on the galactic politics. Um, and then we can kind of move on to Leia herself because it is such a good book for her. So what's the answer? What what would you where would you be in terms of centrist versus populist? What is the answer to how you deal with the this, this question of how much authority should a republic government have or not have? Uh, I mean, that's a <laughs> nice <light> question. <laughs> that's not even politics 101. That's like politics <laughs> 1001. Like, what is the ideal form of government? Um, mm-hmm. I think you have to have a representative body, um, a Senate, if you will. Like, we'll just call it a Senate. Um, because in this case, planets, like individual planets have to have a voice in the galactic politics of what's going on but i do think at some point you need one figure who makes decisions and 
because otherwise you're you're in gridlock right like that's yeah. what this book depicts is like these two parties neither one has enough of a majority to push anything through so nothing ends up happening we're very familiar with this phenomenon right and you need one central authority to kind of finally say if we end up in gridlock like i'm the one who will break it and say we have to do this but yeah. there have to be checks and balances so that the will of that central authority does not overtake the ruling uh, the senate you know, as we see at the end of the prequels, where mm-hmm. uh, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine just declares himself emperor and just like strips the Senate of most of its power. Right. And I think if you listen to Palpatine's speech at the end of Revenge of the Sith and then listen to Hux's speech in The Force Awakens, it's the same speech. They're both talking about the problems with, you know, the lack of authority and like, you know, that there isn't anything driving it. And it's, yeah, like I think I think in both cases we look to them as like, okay, that's wrong. That's that's far too much authority. It's not legitimate authority. And and it's very easy to therefore go to a place of, you know, pacifism or, you know, there shouldn't be the government or any of this kind of stuff. And I think what I like about this book is it really wrestles with how hard that is. Um, this is going to sound like a weird example, but it, it, it kind of is fitting. I am a person who likes to help my friends make plans in ways that can sometimes be seen as useful and take charge. And the word bossy has certainly been applied to me on more than one occasion. And at one point, uh, when I was kind of really aware of this and aware that I, you know, friends of mine were being bothered by it, I I made a point. I was just like, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to try and just be like a get along, go along person. And then all of a sudden, my friends were having these long conversations about where to go for dinner. Yeah. And could never figure out where to go until eventually one of my friends was like, Matthew, I know we asked you to stop making decisions for everybody. And we mean that. But here we're giving it. Can you tell us where we should go? Do we do Chinese or pizza tonight? And it was just a very funny moment to me of like, oh, wait a minute. I am being granted a bit of authority. The authority is being given to me from below instead of seized from above. Um, and it, I'm still a way too bossy person. That's not what this is about. But like. It, it, the story has always stuck with me because of what I, that's what I think this is all about is that it's like the and in some ways the fact that in the New Republic they're struggling with the exact same question that the separatists and the Republic wrestled with back in the Clone Wars days and again not to take us off on another new tangent but it gives me a lot of hope that we're finally going to talk about these questions in more depth in the new series of movies we're getting with Daisy Ridley and Ray that are set 15 years afterwards, because I, I don't think they can give us the Republic fell apart again. I think we have to have our heroes are the one in power this time. And how is that going? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it comes to space, like galactic level politics, mm-hmm. galaxy's too big, whether you're talking yeah. about Star Wars or anything else. I mean, the same issue arises in Isaac Asimov, right? The whole, the foundation is about the galactic empire, presumably like the only political entity in the known galaxy falling apart. And I think like when you're talking about hundreds, potentially thousands of worlds, that's too many. And it's possible that a single entity, single political entity cannot exist that large and that diverse because all of these planets are going to have very different interests in some cases because of their geographic location in the galaxy in some cases because of the races involved the different races if you were talking about star wars 
mm-hmm. are going to have very different interests from each other. So yeah. it may just be that um, a single entity like this can't exist, like an empire or a republic or whatever you want to call it, and that each planet, we can still have a senate and they can send representatives to negotiate things and like agree on some things, but maybe it's not possible to have every yeah. everyone agree on everything and you need to just be willing to say, we don't agree, but let's not go to war about it. Yeah, yeah. Is there but, that place? But that, yeah, but that's not always going to be possible because, you know, it might be like a planet or resources or something that they both want, and if they want mm-hmm. it enough, they will go to war. That's that's what happens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, it's very true. So let's talk about Leia herself. Um, oh, and yeah. And one thing that's so great is we get, we really get a sense of how different parts of the galaxy see her. You know, there, there's one group that that uh, um, uh, are. Our friend Castrofo kind of falls into a bit that calls her Hut Slayer, where she's really remembered for like killing Jabba the Hut, and and for some it's because like literally they were they were under his thumb and and so they love her for that, and for others it's just kind of remembered as like just how how badass she was that she's not just a politician she got her hands dirty and literally killed this galactic criminal, um, and then there are others who see her as you know the head of the populist cause, and then of course all the things that we learn the, you know how people see her when the Vaderness is revealed. Um, how did, how did you feel about kind of the picture of Leia we get in this book? The Hut Slayer thing was interesting. So that was the um, gangster, right? The Nikto mm-hmm. gangster Rin Riven Dai yep. uh, refers to her that way and actually has a hollow. I, I don't know where this camera was hidden, but uh, whatever. He has a hollow recording of, of the moment where Leia kills Java the Hut. And he mm-hmm. considers it one of his most prized possessions because the Nikto's were subservient to the Huts and kind right. of their like frontline thugs. And when Jabba the Hutt was killed, it kind of liberated them in a way to become their own gangsters. And so he's <laughs> Rin Riven is like very thankful to Leia and wants to be her mm-hmm. friend and ally because of this. Right. And so yeah, to have her be revered in the scum and villainy faction as mm-hmm. the, the hut slayer i think was an interesting turn and not something i really expected out of this or out of star wars yeah it was fun especially because it really gets into how she feels about that you know that it was a very pivotal moment for her uh, uh, quite understandably so yeah um and i mean and- it's it's murder like obviously she killed a lot of people during the rebellion but it was like with blasters and stuff but this was a very personal murder right. like with her bare hands and a chain and there's an extent to which i she uses the word murder so this is not me arguing with you that was one thing about the book that i quibbled a bit with because to me like the idea of this person is my enemy, they're my rival, but in this moment they are not a threat to me in any way, and I kill them in cold blood, that's murder. When you are literally chained to them as their slave, when you know very well that if a slave displeases them that you may get thrown down to the rancor, and you quite literally use the chain of your own enslavement to to kill them at a moment when, you know, your brother and your friends and, and everyone else is fighting them, and you know that if they don't win the fight, you're probably dead too. Murder felt like much too strong a word. That that felt like to me she's joining in the fight in the way she can, and and freeing herself. Uh, and I get that her character might feel that guilt for sure, 
But I definitely kind of had some pushback on that. What what, what did you feel about the, the use of the word murder for it? I mean, I agree with it. I think it's murder. Mm. You, you, your argument is more about whether it's justified or not. Like, we've had these conversations about, like, what what force is justified in war? What force is justified in this is not a war with Java, but a, a mm. conflict, like a yeah. violent conflict. I, I, To me, A, it's murder. B, I think there's a little bit of human-centricness tied into how we view this in that Java mm-hmm. is depicted as a disgusting slug alien, right? Right. Had Java been human, had he been that original human guy, like in the the fur coat that we the see in, Scottish in, accent. Yeah. Yeah, in the deleted scene, um, I think we would feel differently about this scene and about how it carries out, right? Like if Leia put the chain around a human human neck and choked them out, I think we, you might even consider it more murder, and you might be like, "Whoa!" Like I feel very differently about Leia now. But the fact that Java, like the the chain mm-hmm. barely fits around him, and it's, and he's so much more physically imposing, really, mm-hmm. really changes the dynamic of that. That that I will grant you that it's possible. I I think even under that situation, the whole like you've chained her up. There's clearly kind of a <clears throat> some degree of a sexual aspect with what she's wearing, oh, and yeah. and and the the dynamic there. And the fact that we have seen him literally kill the person in her position for displeasing him, I I think I'm all on board with her 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 killing him in cold blood. Um, but but you might be right. You know, it it is, it, it's one of those things where because again, also I saw it when I was for the first time at six years old when it yeah. before I ever morally questioned it. Um, so I will acknowledge the possibility that I'm wrong. I really don't think so. <laughs> but you you may well, well be right. Well, here's how I would here's how I would say about mm-hmm. this. Um. I think that in the, the work of fiction, Return of the Jedi, it's justified. It's a justified murder, but I think mm-hmm. that the storytellers manipulate us into justifying it through means like making Java this slug. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I and and, and puts us at ease with feeling that it's okay, right? Like yeah. because it's still like it's still somewhat for kids. So you don't mm-hmm. want kids like again like I don't think you would want to show your kids that if Leia yeah. put a chain around a human neck and choked them out, choked them to death. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And certainly, I mean, like, the implications of him, like, trying to lick her, I think, change dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Like, it has all those implications, but they're harder to see if you're a very young kid. Yes, because it's, yeah, exactly. Because it's the monster. Um, and yeah, I think I, that Java's depicted in that way to allow him to be that disgusting. I think also there are <clears> – <throat> part of this may just be semantic. To me, I think mur- the definition of murder is an unjustified killing. Mm. Um, but that, that's, that's, a, that's a whole other question sure. we can get into. Um, just further on that, it, it does, though, I think, pose this really interesting question for her of sort of who is she. And I think it's, it's, it's – the for me, her inner monologues are some of my favorite parts of the book because I think she is wrestling with this. What does it mean to be Vader's child? You know, am I yeah. touched by the dark side? Um and here, there's something that I think the book hints at that I'm wondering if you picked up on or am I just headcanoning it? Because this was this was also hinted at by some of the extended universe stuff, and I've always just loved this as headcanon. It, 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 we see in this book, as well as in some other stuff, she is very willing to cut corners to do what she thinks is right. She's willing to lie to people. She's willing to manipulate them to some extent. Some who are pretty terrible. Some are just like 
people in her own government because she thinks they're not getting what needs to get done, get done. Yeah. Um, the thing that was kind of hinted at, I thought, in this book is the idea that what she is doing, if she were a Jedi, would potentially be a path to the dark side. And that, that it may be part of why she doesn't more explore herself as a Jedi is she know she wants to be a politician and she knows she needs to get her hands dirty from time to time. That kind of like that. that I don't know if I'm best explaining this, but it, it feels like to me like there's a conscious choice of her character of being a Jedi means a level of moral purity that I can't do if I want to be effective in the kind of shadow role as a politician, but also a resistance leader and all the rest that I do. Did you get any of that? Am I just headcanoning like crazy here? No, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. There might have even been a passage where the, she makes reference to Luke and Jedi. Yeah, I think there definitely is. And, yeah. and says something maybe not exactly like, but definitely implying that. That that rings true to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's something about how like she knows he wouldn't approve or he wouldn't be able to do this or something like that. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's – oh, go ahead. Well, I, I don't know. I was going to kind of tangent to Luke because – Go for it. Well, he, he does not appear as a character, but he's referenced several times, as is Ben Solo, you know, their son, who is apparently has already started training with Luke. So this is pre, you know, the Rashomon where, mm-hmm. you know, he betrays Luke or he, Luke betrays Ben, you know, depends on your point right. of view. But at this point, apparently Ben Solo is with Luke. You know, he's Ben is also never seen as a character in the novel, but right. they reference him. And I'm that's that's kind of the next story I need after this is mm-hmm. she mentions like how this revelation is going to affect Luke because now everyone knows that Luke is Darth Vader's son, which the galaxy right. doesn't didn't know. So will they trust him less? Like were there people that were considering becoming Jedi who don't want to now because they know who he is? And then yeah. how this is gonna affect Ben Solo and his turn to Kylo Ren, like because at some point Snoke gets in his head, and Ky- and Ben starts to worship Darth Vader, right? So, is this the moment where he finds out about his parent, his lineage, and then becomes right. fascinated with Vader? Yeah, it's another thing that's hinted at a little bit, but isn't gone into more, and to the point where kind of the opposite of what you were talking about where it does sometimes feel like some some things are pushed into a story because the executives want it for something else I did get the feeling that there were some parts of this where they had said to the author like no 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 we're going to tell Ben's story it's somewhere else so you mm-hmm. can't have that story here yeah um, because I think one to me one of the most heartbreaking parts of The Force Awakens that again doesn't really make sense but but is there at least and it's sad is this idea that somewhere along the way, Leia and Han became separated from each other yes. and that something happened to Ben and that the losing him was the final nail in the coffin of their relationship, which I will say, first of all, and again, I don't want to kind of dwell on, on hard things, but like as someone who has counseled a lot of people who have gone through some degree of reproductive loss, it, it can be a damage to strong, you know, some relationships can come through even stronger and to be sure, but people who thought never would have ever split up like that can be the thing that 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 not that it ends the relationship but you know what i mean but it's, it's kind of the 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 thing that that leads to all the problems or at least it, it, yeah there's eight million ways to, to frame that but you, i hope people understand what i'm saying but seeing more of this here seeing that it is that 
Han and at this point they're not separated necessarily, but they're basically in a long distance relationship because mm -hmm. she feels like she has to be part of the politics. He feels like he just he can't. He has to be out, you know, uh, flying all over the galaxy and participating in these speed races and 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 not just locked up in the politics and. I think one of the tragedies of it is that she so badly wants to go out and join him, but her political responsibilities won't let her. And and I, I think in that I think we kind of see the seeds of how is it that these two people who are so in love are are driven apart. And and I want to be very careful. I don't think I don't think we should ever say, oh, Ben becomes you know, Ben becomes Kylo Ren because, you know, his mommy didn't love him enough. You know, lots of kids go to boarding school and don't become genocidal murderers by any means but i think that the the family dynamics that are established in this book do help to paint more of that picture and like like you said make me want a lot more of it yeah i mean i think this has to be the the spark of kylo ren in uh, terms of like he is going to turn on his parents and on luke and distrust them and this seems like the perfect starting point for that of like why didn't you tell me like, you're letting me train yeah. as a Jedi with Luke, but you didn't tell me that Darth Vader is my grandfather? Like, that's scary. Yeah. And and I think I can kind of see how it could both be scary, but also lead to kind of a hero worship of, yeah. like, maybe this is why Luke Luke's afraid. Think of all my real potential, you know? Mm. Yeah. They're just... They're, it, it is... It's funny because I don't really have as much to say about it, but there, it, it, it was just one of the best parts of the book. But just all the stuff about her wrestling with Vader's legacy and what does it mean and – Well, there's one section. I, there's one section where she won, she comes to the realization that Anakin Skywalker was a good person at some point. Yeah. And then fell to – like he, she talks about um, Anakin's relationship with Padme. And how much mm -hmm. he must have loved her because of, yeah. the, you know, anti-fraternization rules in the Jedi Order. But then also, like, it, it seems like they don't know, like, the characters don't know why Anakin fell exactly. They don't yeah. know about the details of, like, he was worried about Padme's life and and how Palpatine turned him using, right. using that fear. And I kind of get why, I mean, I am on record as saying that one of the things I most want from Star Wars is the conversation where Ahsoka learns that Anakin turned back. Like, I, I need to see that. And for a while, I thought it would basically be a conversation between Ahsoka and Luke, and that also that Ahsoka could tell Luke about Anakin. And, and here's where reality is of filmmaking winds up against, uh, you know, the stories I want, and maybe this would be better on the written page or an animation, because I don't ever want Leia recast but I would also I would love to I would love to see or read about Ahsoka and Leia talking, you know, and getting to hear those stories back and forth, and Leia and Luke getting to learn about what Ahsoka knew of their parents, um, and then Luke getting to tell Ahsoka, you know, what happened in Anakin's final days. Yeah, I, I mean, going back to Mandalorian season two point five, you you got that scene, but you didn't really get the payoff, right? You got this weird yeah. like. Like, you're just like your father or something like that line. It's like, but we need the just before yeah. that. We need to know what happened before that. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm hoping the Soka show will give us some of that. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, 
we, I mean, we could do a whole series of episodes on this book, uh, and I want to make sure we don't go on too long. Anything else about Leia that we want to talk about? Well, we get adventure Leia in yeah. this. And, and most important, well, yeah, mostly we get adventure Leia on her own, which mm-hmm. compared to some other novels, like a lot of the other novels, we get adventure Leia with Han or adventure right. Leia with Lando or something like that. So it was nice to see adventure Leia on her own, or at least with her supporting cast who were mm-hmm. like subservient to her, her, um, what chief of staff, Greer yeah, she chief of staff. She has a pilot, and then she has an intern. We're yeah. all kind of hanging the, around. The pilot, oh my gosh, his name is Joff Seastriker, which is it's like continues the most ridiculous Star Wars naming convention. You know, him and him and Biggs and Wedge and yeah, all them can love it. fly off, fly off in the sunset. Yeah, so, and I, I, we get some really powerful scenes, especially when when the Vader thing is revealed, because I, I think it's her chief of staff, one of her, or maybe her pilot, one of her people can't work with her anymore when it's, it's her intern about, it's her intern, her intern yeah yeah and i think i think leia shows a very powerful empathy in those moments where she like she knows that she's not vader she knows that she's different um oh and actually I, i'm uh, we're now bouncing around a little bit but i'm very glad you brought up the heir to the empire books because there's such an interesting connection here that i wonder if it's intentional hmm. And here's going to be a spoiler for the Heir to the Empire books. Apologies, they're almost they're more than thirty years old, so I don't feel too bad. Um, in those books, there's a group of characters. I'm going to spoil this as little as I can, who feel personally loyal to Darth Vader, and they work for the Empire because of it. And when they realize they were they can like, you know, have very very talented senses of smell and and of like le- legacy and lineage and things like that. They recognize by smell that Leia is the descendant of Darth Vader. And so in that, her, her position as the daughter of Vader, which has an official uh, word in their language that I couldn't possibly remember how to pronounce, um, she has no problem using that. And, and she talks about it, I think, in a little bit in internal monologues, but she's very comfortable using the fact that she's the daughter of Leia in those books. And so I just thought it was such an interesting counterpoint. I wonder if you kind of picked up on this and thought it was just mm-hmm. coincidence or intentional that in this book, not only is the fact that she's a daughter of Leia not a benefit for daughter, her with anyone, Vader. but daughter of Vader, yeah, but that's a huge hindrance. Uh, I, it, it took me a moment. You're talking about, what is that race's name? But it's uh, uh, Nogri. Nogri, yeah. I think they're pronounced, yeah. Who, the char- one character at least, Rook, uh, Thrawn's personal bodyguard does appear right. in Rebels, but we don't get as much of the backstory fleshed out. We don't really understand why yeah. he, is, he is his bodyguard. But yeah. Um, I was actually like, this ties into a question I had for you, is in Legends, in those older novels, is it, it's known kind of galactically her lineage, right? Like, it's not the secret that it is in this novel and it, that it is in canon. I don't honestly know for sure. I recently reread those Thrawn books, and I I felt like there wasn't any attempt to, like, you know, that those people discover that she's Vader's daughter again because of what they recognize it in her. And I, I don't remember, though, anyone else being surprised by it. I think yeah. I think it's, it is pretty pretty well common knowledge that luke tells that story um but yeah i don't i don't this would be a good question for jonah kelman 
Um, I actually may tag him in the, the when I post this episode and get his thoughts on it. Um, but I, I, I think it was I don't think it was anywhere near as much of a secret as it is in these in this canon. Yeah. In, in, in this novel, I believe she says the only people who know are Luke and Han. Right. So, I mean, they obviously haven't told Ben, their son. I, I don't think people like Lando or Mon Mothma know. Mm-hmm. And so it is like a very tightly held family secret and not even their closest political or military allies know. And that makes mm-hmm. that makes the ending of the founding of the resistance to me very powerful because mm-hmm. after it is revealed to the galaxy, the people who still end up showing up to her call, call to action at the end, people like Admiral Akbar, Nine Nub, um, that we know from Return of the Jedi, like them and several others, and several of the politicians who stick with her and show loyalty to her through this. One of the mm-hmm. politicians, I can't remember their name, um, but they come to her and say, like, I've, I'm still with you. I support you. Yeah. I wish you had shared the secret with me because I thought we were we were that close. And it's yeah, true. I think it's, like, uh, the, Senator Tar, Senator Gar, or something like that. But yeah. It's a, I think it's a very powerful moment in showing how closely guarded the secret was and how betrayed some of the close people close to her felt but still mm-hmm. remain loyal to her and loyal to her cause. Yeah. Uh, so I did just quickly check in with uh, Mr. Jonah Kelman, who, by the way, uh, <laughs> folks, if you want to know more about the extended universe canon, he has an, a podcast called uh, The Archives Are Incomplete, where he just does a full breakdown of every novel. It's fantastic. Uh, and he says, eventually the galaxy does learn, and it is used against Leia and Luke by their political opponents at times. So it sounds like uh, it is closer to this than I originally thought, that... Okay. um. It's not quite as big of a deal, but that it is definitely uh, uh, an yeah. issue. So thank you so much, Jonah, for um, nice. being there for the live live commentary. <laughs> so any other things about this novel? Uh, I mean, there is, again, so much we could talk about. It, like you said, Adventure Leia is awesome. It is fun to get to see kind of what Han Solo would be doing, as well as to see just more of the kind of, um, you know, that, that like space races are just a, a thing in the galaxy. You know, it's more of the yeah, day-to-day it's, stuff. It's setting up a potential future story, like a prequel to this, where we learn more about the background of Greer Sonell. So mm-hmm. Leia's chief of staff, Greer, was originally a racer for Han. And then right. she got a disease that prevented her from from flying, from from racing. And then that's when she transitioned to being Leia's chief of staff. Right. So there's potentially some backstory there that we could get that could be fun, like adventures mm-hmm. with Han and Greer or something in racing. For sure. Uh, we definitely also, I think it's fun that we get to learn more about these royal houses, that there used to be a very established kind of royal aristocracy that was very involved in the running of the of the galaxy. And the High Republic novels have picked up on that a little bit. And certainly some of the, the newer works we've been getting about Count Dooku really highlight how him being the, you know, Count Dooku, that royal line was important. Um, the book only kind of hints at it, but I, I do think it's kind of cool that we learn more about sort of how that played in and, you know, what ro- whatever role that would play in the galactic politics beforehand. Because it's very clear, if nothing else, that Leia wants nothing to do with it. Like at one point it's pointed out that, you know, there are still people of Alderaan and she is technically still not only their princess, but their queen. Mm. And she outright refuses to have a coronation. She does not want to be made queen. She wants to be a general or a, a senator, not princess or queen anymore. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and the, the character, I guess the main villain in this story, Lady Carice, is, uh, is royalty. But at the end, when Leia finds out that she betrayed her royal oath by... Because what happens is she finds out about uh, Leia's lineage through a memento left to her by Bale. Right. When she Where Bale goes, was meaning to tell her. Yeah. She, uh, Lady Carice goes on... Leia basically gifts her an additional royal title, right? Says, like, you, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're kind of related or something. I don't want this title on this planet. I'm just going to let you have it. So Lady right. Carice goes to accept it and finds that there is a gift to Leia as part of this ceremony because they thought that she would accept the role. And one of those is a, like a hollow recording from Bale explaining that Vader is her father, which did make me wonder. When 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 does Bale know? Because now in the Obi Wan Kenobi show, he didn't know. Mm. Right? He doesn't know that Anakin becomes Vader. Yes, I mean the prob- Obi Wan probably tells him at that point. Yeah. So, I think this novel is like written fully before Obi Wan Kenobi maybe was even a concept or barely a concept. Mm-hmm. So, there might be some minor issues there in terms of timing of, of when Bale yeah. knows. I think it's possible. That's definitely possible. Yeah. And I will say it is nice also that the book really kind of makes a big deal about Bale. Like the the opening scenes are with a statue of him being unveiled and how important he was as an early, early voice in the, in, in forming the, 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 not the resistance, the rebellion. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, he's, he's a great man in terms of Star Wars politics, Mm -hmm. but it makes me uncomfortable. Like any statue at this point. For a political mm-hmm. figure, I feel like some point in the future, someone's going to need to tear that down. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just my cynical nature of politics. And and mm-hmm. history is that history should always be advancing and the heroes of the past may be villains of the future type of thing. Yeah. I think it's fair. Well, I, I don't know if you heard it, but I did a, a really interesting conversation a couple of months ago uh, about how would Count Dooku be remembered mm. by the galaxy that doesn't know he was a Sith Lord they just know that all the things that the separatists, you know, um, thought about what happened to the New Republic did happen, and it became the Empire. And so would he be heroized and, and made statues of, and would that be a problem? Yeah, and I, I think this the, the other thing that this novel does is cast such an interesting light on fandom, on us, mm-hmm. in terms of the people like Castrofo and his allies who worship the empire essentially like some of them worship the empire some of them you know like castor are only interested in the artifacts but right. now you know we've heard stories about influential people in politics who have nazi artifacts and like you kind of side-eye them and go why you got those things right yeah. and there are valid historical reasons to be interested in such things but I think this novel does a good job of shining a light on people who have interest in these things may not be the best people. And even as fans, we have to be careful of how we talk about fictional imperialism and fictional fascism Mm -hmm. and and worship that. I love Darth Vader. I love the Empire. I love Star Destroyers. But in the context of fiction. Yeah. I, I think that's very well put. And 
you know, there's a great scene early on. I, I think it's early on. It may happen later, but where she kind of is chiding him. And and, and again, I'm, I'm trying to remember how much of this is exactly in it. How much do I read into it? Because this is my understanding. Because I think to me, I, I'm a history buff. I love that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, I had a friend whose grandfather had fought in World War II and had captured a couple of pistols from Nazi officers. He probably ended their lives. And he kept those. And I thought those were really badass when I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's a part of me that understands the, this is just history. It's interesting. And I want to display it. And I think part of what the book gets at is the idea of, if you want to be known that if you are a history interest and not because you have sympathy for the things these stand for, you have to have empathy for the people who are going to see these things as the, the symbols of what either harmed them and their ancestors in the past or what is the people who want to harm them today, you know? And I think that's the... Um, you know, that I think is one of the most I, – I, I once heard someone t- giving that argument about, you know, Confederate flags, for example. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong. The, the Confederacy is an important moment in our history and wanting to have it in a historical place for that purpose makes sense. Yes. But that but flying, – flying that flag outside your house sends a message to your neighbors. Right. And that even, even if you are like – you bought it on eBay and you think it's badass and you really believe you don't have a racist bone in your body, the lack of empathy yes. toward that, that like probably you do have some racism in your body. I mean, we all do, but you know what I mean? But yeah, that even if it's that, it's the lack of empathy for how is this seen by others that become, and I think, and I think the book does a really good job of kind of helping to, A, to helping to thread that line, but also I think, and this is kind of what I said is his tragic flaw at the beginning. It's the question of, can you admire an authoritarian while condemning the things they did with that authority? And I think that's a question, you know, because I think that's, you know, can like again and again, we have movements in history that are like, what can we learn from Napoleon? What can we learn from Caesar? What can we learn from Stalin? What can we, from any of these people? And the answer is almost always like, don't like what they did. The the power they hold winds up leading to authoritarianism because that's what that does. It's the hu- it's the hubris of analyzing authoritarians and saying, ah, but I would do it differently if right. I had that power. And the phrase, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like once right. once people gain power, even if it seems like they achieved it through with good intentions, the power gets to you. Yeah. And you start to and- misuse it. And, and it all comes back in irony because probably the the best illustration of that level of a desire for benevolent authoritarianism of if I had all the power, everything would be better is expressed by Anakin Skywalker. And I, I can't quote word for word, but on a couple of different occasions, he says something like, you know, I, I would just make the Senate do what they need to. You know, I would if I had the power, I would just make things right. <laughs> yeah, and, that's that and that's, famous, the memed scene. <laughs> Where mm-hmm. Padme's like, you mean this, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Rick, I'm so glad you suggested this book as something we should discuss. The, it, it's a wonderful book, and there's so much more to hear about. And I, uh, for folks, if you want to give us feedback, please let us know. I've really been falling behind on feedback, and so I wanted just to answer one quick uh, thing that got written in because it's also a good way to let um, Riki talk about this about about this a bit. And here we're going to talk about um, the end of the Bad Batch season two. So if you haven't seen that, then you may want to hit pause. You've you've seen Bad Batch season two, right? 
Yeah, I, I'm just going to need a reminder, but I guess that might come up in the question. You'll probably get it in the question. Okay, um, okay let's go. So if you haven't spoiled that, go ahead, if you haven't seen that yet, go ahead and skip ahead like 90 seconds or whatever it will be. Um, for those who have spoilers in three, two, one, we're talking about the death of tech and how tech was was introduced as a <sighs> um, a character who was very strongly autistic coded. And I talked about how, as much as I, I loved his character, it was a bit hard for me to see an autistically coded character killed off. Uh, and Katie, uh, she wrote, Yo, Matt, hey, thanks for being transparent about being on the autism spectrum, because I'm super mildly Aspie. Anyways, yeah, I thought it was cool that the Aspie clone, I think there she's referring to Asperger's uh, as Aspie, which mm. I, I, I want to honor how everybody self-identifies. I want to say that, as I understand it, that's a term that I don't use anymore, and I think a lot of people in the autism community have not used anymore, because given you know, what we're talking about, it, it, it actually traces directly to a Nazi scientist who did a lot of research and things like that. Um, so just, just want to throw in that disclaimer, but also want to honor how, how uh, the term Katie's using. Um, uh, and, and so again, she says, I thought it was super cool that this clone might get my, uh, okay, Backing up further, I talked about how in the episode she had she and Fee, he and Fee had been flirting quite a bit, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a little sad that a that Ship was the, the clear trope of oh someone declares their love for you you're about to get some when you get back home so you have to die. Yeah. So she writes again. Anyways, I thought it was cool the Aspie cl- clone might get some, and then was bummed that he died even if it was a super heroic death. And your boy Paul mentioned Nemec, so shouts to another Aspie dude that also died on Star Wars. Once we get a neurodiverse character in Star Wars that can bang, find someone special, and live happily ever after, you and I will be there for it, buddy. Um, And yeah, I I would like to see that character get to have a happy relationship or just a couple fun smooch sessions and get to live happily ever after. Um, I think we're getting some others, but yeah, it's... it's, um, I loved Tech. I didn't love Tech's death particularly because of some of the tropes that it played into and the, you know, kill your neurodivergence uh, is, is not really a thing yet, but I could see it being a thing we develop and that I didn't love. Do you think he's, do you think he's 100% dead? Like how much <sighs> they show his helmet at the end? Like um, what, what's his face brings the helmet, mm-hmm. the doctor. I think it's very likely that they Bucky Barnes him and I'll be mad about that too. Because I yeah. don't, which maybe sounds like a mean cunt, but I, I like, even if I didn't want him to die, I hate fake death. I think if you make me go through the emotional pain yep. of a character dying, then let that character stay dead. I, I agree with all of that. Like, I think he's still alive because they only mm-hmm. had his helmet. Yep. Um, you didn't see the body. He wasn't even bisected. Like, what is falling yeah. in Star Wars? <laughs> doesn't, you don't die. I think he's still alive. Um, yeah, Bucky Barnes, that's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. And I would be upset too, because I think like it, it was a gut-wrenching moment, and I did not like that it happened, but it meant a lot that it did happen. Yeah. And yeah, I think you, you have to let death stick, especially yeah. when it's that meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I, I want the character to still be alive, but I would prefer if they just hadn't killed him in the first place. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good summation. So, Katie, thanks so much for writing in. To all the people who have also written in, I promise we're going to start getting to those. I'm probably going to get Aaron back on. We'll do just a feedback episode. Uh, but just wanted to get to that one quick because I wanted to hear your thoughts on it um, as well, Ricky. So, 
to our listeners. Thank you all so much. Um, I'm going to give Ricky a chance to talk about what he's doing in just a moment. And then in our patron section, uh, we're actually going to do a lot more of that. We're going to talk about Pokemon and what in the world is happening Whoa. that uh, Mr. Ricky is doing so much uh, uh, streaming with them. So if you're a patron uh, or if by the time this comes out, it may be also just if you're a member uh, through True Story FM. There'll be more on that on the website soon. Um, you'll get access to that. But for those who aren't, Ricky, where can people find you? Well, I would I would say Twitter, but I tweet so much less these days. Like you can uh-huh. find me there, but wow, that platform has gone from like a hundred to thirty in like very it, fast. It time. is a, a hive of scum and villainy. If yeah. ever I saw one, but either on Twitter or on Twitch, you can find me at you know whatever website slash Wikipedia go r i k i p e d i a g o, and yeah, mm-hmm. on Twitch I do stream. Pokemon Go, Go Battle League Battles uh, most days of the week. So I'm kind of surprised. Like, what are you going to be doing about Pokemon, Matthew? <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to talk about it. I'm not doing anything, but I want to, I want you and the fan, I want you to be able to talk to the fans about it. Oh. And help me understand better what's going on there. Okay. So, yeah. uh, and to anybody who's not going to stick around for that, of course, you can find all the contact information for us at theethicalpanda.com. You can also find it in the show notes. Let us know what you think. We'd love to know your thoughts. If you want to become a patron or a member, all that information is also in the show notes. Find us on Twitter, TikTok. Send us your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. On behalf of myself, Riki, thank you all so much for tuning in. We have spoken. Roger, Roger. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> all right, for our patrons, welcome back. Um, so many, many a year ago, I, as a person who knew very little about Pokemon... I knew there was a yellow Pokemon who shot lightning and said cute things. And I met a cute woman who really liked this game called Pokemon Go, where apparently you walked around a lot on your phone and every now and then you push some buttons. And I played it for about two weeks, mostly just to help get the attention of the pretty woman, and eventually found other ways to get her attention, and now we're married. Um, but that's the last I really knew about Pokemon Go. Now it's apparently something that you're streaming. Tell me more about what exactly is Pokemon Go and what is it you're streaming and and for people who would want to check it out, what is it? Well, I feel like everyone played this game originally, yeah. right? When it came out in 2016. I mean, even you played it. Yeah. Um, so you should be familiar with it, but it's a, basically an AR game where you interact you know, on your phone, but with the real world, with with real mm. world objects. Like you walk around and there are things that are either Pokestops or gyms, Pokemon gyms, as places of interest in the real world. So often like a park will be a an object or a statue uh-huh. or a mural or any anything really. And so you walk around and then you catch Pokemon in that virtual slash real world. And a few, this went on for a few years, like four years, where that's mm-hmm. pretty much all you did with the game. And then in 2020, just as the pande- pandemic uh, struck, they introduced a new game mode called Go Battle League, which is a PvP mode where you go in and you you go get paired with anyone in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's PvP within the game. And you get to use the Pokemon that you've been catching and collecting and powering up and battle against other players. It's like 24-7. I mean, you're limited to 25 battles a day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what I do is I stream. It takes maybe about two, two and a half hours to get through those battles and, and chatting with people about stuff. Uh-huh. But 
that's that's what I've been doing with my spare time. And nice. we have a good time there. If you listen to me, you know, on this podcast, you might be familiar with my politics and my vibe of mm-hmm. things. And we, we talked about stuff. We actually talked a little bit about this podcast today in that I said I was going to be on the Star Wars podcast and express my thoughts on, you know, fascism and mm-hmm. fandom of fascism. Yep. And someone in chat mentioned that they were a fan of the anime Attack on Titan, which mm. is another one of those things that has, has uncomfortable fandom. Yeah, that there, that there are very fascistic elements in that show. And the main character ends up just being a genocidal maniac. Mm. And being able to recognize that that is a character, and you can say that you like that character just the way that you can say that, you, that I like or I said love, Darth Vader as yeah. a character, but recognize that they are truly evil. And if they were existing in real life, like there's no way you should be a fan of that. Right. But, but that's the thing. Like when you're Twitch streaming, like the game is only part of it. And yeah. the people, the people who continue to come, come for personality and for conversation. And that's what I try to provide. And, give people a place to like chill out we, we usually have mm-hmm. like low-key like lo-fi music and people nice. really like that other 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 twitch streamers in the category have like much more upbeat music I'm like no let's just let's just chill out i i can see your your kind of vibe being much more like feet up on the table you know kind of chill out yeah know. yeah and unfortunately the state of the game of Pokemon Go, the company the company that makes is called Niantic. And mm-hmm. the state of the game has not been good for a little mm. while. And it's a very fracturous it's a very fracturous time in the galaxy. Um, <laughs> so it's a fracturous time for our community. And it's tough for me because I already went through this once, you know, with Magic the Gathering where Mm -hmm. Magic the Gathering has been through some difficult times, and I left that community because I was not happy with a lot of the things that were happening, and in particular, Mm -hmm. like, the decisions that the company was making with its product. And so, you know, I've been playing this game for six, coming on seven years now, and I played Magic, you know, for 20-some years. So it's tough tough to have moved on from one life-altering game to another mm-hmm. life-altering game, but in too quick of a succession to be like, is it over already? I don't know. Yeah, I'm still streaming it. I'm still playing it. But it, it is definitely a difficult time for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's also what, what I try to provide people as a place that, hey, we can talk about it and discuss the difficulties we're having with the game and the company, but not be negative. And, that, and this is also yeah. you know, like talking about Twitter obviously a uh, certain billionaire buying it was very influential and in, in why I think it's getting worse. But the gaming community I'm a part of there has turned a lot more to negativity. Mm. And it's, it's fair to say that some of that is justified because of the decisions that Niantic has made. But you know how social media has a tendency to amplify rage. Yeah. And, and you know, we talk about like clickbait and like rage bait the way people use like tweets or thumbnails on YouTube videos to make people upset so that they'll watch or they'll click through. 
mm-hmm. you know, stuff like Star Wars is getting woke, things yeah. like that. And and too many people that I previously enjoyed their content or enjoyed interacting with them on Twitter are turning more and more to just rage and being angry at the company and calling them names and stuff. And I'm yeah. not here for that. I'm here for fair criticism of what they're doing. We should be critical when things are not meeting our expectations. But there's no place for name-calling. And there's definitely no place for death threats, which apparently at least one of their employees received. And that's that's unacceptable. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the people who are resort to name-calling eventually all resort to death threats. But there's, there's this line that you follow. Yeah. And if you continue to follow this line of anger and hate... To the dark side, it will lead, right? I, like, I was gonna say, I mean, this. this is the whole philosophy of, of Star Wars, and I, yeah, I, it, that yeah, that kind of thing makes me really want to come check out your uh, stream, and I definitely will try to do, and uh, because, you know, I'm generally not a streaming person. I try to kind of check in when I can, but a lot of the ones that I have enjoyed, you know, my friend Will Freeland, basically what you talked about, it's all the same thing except he's building Legos instead of playing a game. Yeah, and uh, I've thought about reopening where I might play poker one night and Magic another, and mostly, but just just use it a way to talk to people. Um, and I, I, I think, and I just some conversations with you helped me on this because I definitely used to be someone of the keyboard warrior who anytime someone posted a, you know, Star Wars so woke would be like, all right, well, I got to open this up and it's, I got to, I got to fight. Tough. It's and tough. I, and we had these conversations, especially like when Kenobi came out. About oh yeah. So much of the anger there of the mm-hmm. racism and sexism and that type of behavior, what, um, Moses Ingram dealt with like yep. should be called out and should be condemned but in doing so like there's a danger to us like feeding into yeah. uh, the other side of that anger and just everyone I, being angry at each other just cut those I think people it, out yeah and I think in my reviews of the Kenobi show I think we went too far in that and I think we spent I spent especially too much time arguing with that I, and one thing I've been very grateful for and this has particularly been the work of some amazing creators, mostly women of color, to be very clear, uh, not exclusively, um, but people who I follow on TikTok and Twitter who've really kind of focused on a, like, okay, we know all the idiots are out there. Let's just talk to ourselves, though, about the stuff that we yes. love. Um, and, and that's something I've really enjoyed and I really love that it sounds like that's the kind of vibe you're going for on your, on your Twitch. So, yeah, I'd very much suggest people check it out. Um, I'll post the link in the show notes. Uh, do, you, do you stream at regular hours or is it kind of just whenever you feel like it? I have kind of a rotating regular schedule, but it also changes because like the circumstances in the game change. It's it's hard to explain. Yeah. But I usually on most weekdays I either stream at this is Pacific uh, time. Mm-hmm. I either stream at ten AM or six PM Pacific. But it just okay. depends on the day of the week and like what is going on that day. Yeah. That and, makes sense. Yeah, like I well, even if you don't, like, you probably won't know much about the game itself that I'm playing. But we talk a lot about Star Wars, Matthew. And actually, I'm my, sure you do. a lot of my channel alerts are Star Wars sounds. So, oh, you might, nice. You might, enjoy, awesome. you might enjoy the vibe even more than you think. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll definitely check it out if I do. Uh, if I do get Calrissian's card room up and going, which is the name I'm thinking about Ooh. for mine. But let's let's see if Disney already sues me just for saying those words on here. Uh, <laughs> you can come and ignore the poker and, and, and talk with me someone there. And if nothing else, though, I'm just glad you clarified that it kind of shifted into this new kind of game, which I assume is now on computers, right? No, no, no. It's still mobile. It's still on the phone. 
okay, because I guess that, so like, because when, when you said it, and granted, I'm a bad friend. I haven't checked out your stream yet. I should. But my image was like, are, are you walking around and going into parks with like a camera perched on your shoulder? No. Like how? No, the, I mean, there are some people who do that, who, who do mobile streams where they have their phone screen like mirrored onto the, the uh -huh. Twitch stream and then like a face cam. Okay. And sometimes they'll have two cameras, like one face cam and one like forward cam showing where they're going. So they may the like, force be with their data rate because they yeah, must be using so much data. They'll have three images. But <laughs> yeah. as I said, like the 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 Go Battle League, the GBL thing is like on the phone, mobile, but just like sitting in a room and PVPing my three Pokemon against my opponent's three Pokemon. Nice. So there is that outdoor aspect. I don't really have the setup for that. Yeah. And I don't know. There's probably usually less interest, but I do occasionally like go into other Pokemon Go streamers who do that because I want to have a different experience too, like a different vibe, a different game. I mean, it's That's the awesome. same game, but there's different aspects of it. Right. That's awesome. All right. We'll definitely check that out. Uh, the show note, the link will be in the show notes. As I said, are all the links for the Ethical Panda. Hope you check those things out too. Most of all, though, thank you all so much for being great fans. We have spoken. Roger, Roger. <laughs> Always more Roger Roger. <laughs> <laughs>